Well, thank you everybody for arriving and being here, sharing this precious time together. Just going to wait for a few more moments while everybody continues to click on and arrive. So making yourselves comfortable and um, great to be able to share the Dharma with all of you. So since one of the themes of our retreat is balance, well-being and balance, balance bringing that well-being actually, we thought it would be good to give you some tools and to understand uh, what's going on in your practice so you can assess what's going on and make a judge uh, adjustment so that uh, you can attain a greater and greater balance in your practice. We want you to experientially understand when there's some imbalance and why that could be and whether you have to um, settle your energy down or kind of raise your energy up moment to moment in order to continue. So today I'm going to be talking about the five spiritual faculties and sometimes um, they're called factors of mind that come into balance uh, as we keep our practice continuous uh, throughout the day. So sometimes they're called the five balancing factors, actually. So these are the qualities of the mind and uh, bodily energy that we naturally have uh, some uh, dominion over in order to uh, balance, in order to bring energy where it's needed, bring more attention where it's needed, or to ratchet down our energy or our excitement about anything. And uh, as we keep going, we'll see that they become more and more powerful in and of themselves, each one of them, which I'll mention in a minute. And also in uh, conjunction with the others, they become more balanced, more harmonizing. And you, you can see as you listen for yourselves, I hope that you'll be able to just tune in to your own practice so that you you can understand for yourselves and maybe bring up your own experiences as I speak, so that it's not just a theoretical understanding and, and you do you you are able to understand from your own experience. So these tools can help you in your practice so that um, you can make those adjustments. <clears throat> Oftentimes Steve Steve uses the analogy of um, a rocket, for example, um, aiming at some particular um, aim like the moon, for example, and and, uh, going towards that experience or towards uh, those conjunctions of experiences uh, like liberation, for example, (laughs) or harmony in our hearts um, or peace in our lives. But along the way, our practice is noticing what we're working with 
and being able to adjust to make adjustments. So just like the rocket kind of having that particular aim, it has to make many, many adjustments uh, in order to get there. So you would see the rocket's um, pathway is not like just straight ahead. It's like going a little bit more this way and having to make adjustments uh, because that way is not in line with our, our goal. And so it's it's making countless adjustments in order to um, to arrive at a place of that deep harmony and peace that we're all seeking. So first, I want to tell you a little story. Um, some of you have heard this before. <clears throat> it's always good to um, picture in yourselves uh, something like this that might be helpful to you. Well. The background of the story is I was in Burma, in Myanmar, and going to um, report to the teacher, Sayada Upandita, about my practice. And we always have a time in the beginning when we're entering the room uh, that he sort of watches us <laughs> to see, are we really being mindful? And so um, we're walking in slowly. And uh, sometimes he asks a question. Usually it's uh, the answer to the question is something I need to learn. So um, he's kind of bringing, starting to bring that up. And as I was slowly walking in, doing my walking practice, he asked the question, what is equanimity? What is equanimity? Equanimity here implying balance, <clears throat> balance in practice. And because uh, balance is one of the, um, experiences within equanimity that we we have. So I gave my own short response, but his own answer to the question was really important. And that gave me a deepening understanding of what I needed to do with my own practice. So what he said, um, in answer to his own question, he said, equanimity or balance is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindfulness. That horse represents mindfulness. And behind mindfulness, there are two pairs of horses. The first pair represents faith and wisdom. And the second pair behind that pair, the second pair represents concentration and energy. When faith and wisdom are in balance and concentration and energy are in balance, then the lead horse, which is mindfulness, has little work. And that has continued to resonate for me after all these years of, of doing my practice and following instructions that <clears throat> when this, uh, it, what comes up in practice along the way is what we call effortless mindfulness. Many of you, if not all of you, have experienced that in some way already where you sometimes you, you just are keeping continuous and then there's a moment when you just want to, ah, I wish I could just um, lay back and you start laying back and you realize that uh, mindfulness is still there. It's effortly flowing along. And that's when effortless mindfulness has been developed because of the continuity of mindfulness and because 
of the balancing that has already taken place in your practice because of continuity. So he says, when faith and wisdom are in balance, concentration and energy are in balance, then the lead horse mindfulness has little work. It doesn't feel like it needs to be so effortful. And to continue on, he says, the chariot is led effortlessly, smoothly, and powerfully towards liberation. So liberation here means freeing the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion, liberating the heart, mind, life from greed, greed, hatred, and delusion. So this talk is about those five balancing, or sometimes it's called the five spiritual faculties. They're all active powers in and of themselves, and they become stronger as practice continues, as we keep the energy going. It gains momentum in this moment-to-moment continuity of our practice, meaning to say, whenever we feel like we've we've lost the the storyline or the track, then we just come back to what you what you come back to is really what's really happening in that moment. Or if we've lost, don't even know what that is anymore, we come back to a primary anchor somewhere. Could be the breath, could be the stepping if we're doing walking practice. So continuity of practice is very important. So if you can uh, picture this, visualize this in your own mind, mindfulness is the lead horse behind that. Faith and wisdom are two of the faculties behind that concentration and energy. So when those are all in balance, they start to harmonize with one another. And that's when we feel this effortlessness going on. So they're all active powers in and of themselves. They become stronger and each one of them has their own function to perform. So I'll go one by one in, into all of the other, all of the uh, five. They coordinate and corral each other. You know, they keep together, coordinate with one another. A lot of this happens solely because of our continuity of mindfulness. Mindfulness is called the the main uh, corralling factor, the main balancing factor of all of them. So just paying attention to that one thing will bring all the other things into view and into our own understanding of how they are work how they are working. Sometimes we see that one's too strong, and we have to kind of ratchet up the other one in order to find a balance. So. I'll give you some examples of that later. So this um, uh, this balancing and this corralling and them all working together directs them towards the possibility of harmony and balance in our lives as a whole, in our daily lives. And in terms of the Dharma, um, just as important, uh, more important sometimes, especially when we're in a deep retreat like this, is it carries us to that uh, ultimate complete liberation where bit by bit, all of those factors that keep us from feeling really liberated from greed, hatred, and delusion, uh, those factors start to weaken 
they start to get uprooted from the habitual patterns of the mind. And this is all because of those five factors leading them mindfulness. The Buddha points out that neither he nor anyone else can just bestow this upon us. We wish that could be so, you know, like oftentimes in my own um, practice and uh, in the past, I would get so fascinated by certain teachers thinking that, oh, if I just hung around them, you know, and and just got their their blessing all the time and their, uh, you know, juju, just being around them, that that would be good enough, you know, just keep going to those talks or, or those darshans and, and that that's going to be fine. But that's not so. The Buddha points out that there are potentialities within us that are waiting to be nurtured, that are waiting to be fully potentialized. And so the Buddha himself was a human being just like us. and work to potentialize those uh, qualities within his own heart, mind, body, and use them for um, that liberation for his own life. And then using that liberation went on to teach many, many others. So we nurture this growth by understanding how they work. And this is what this Dharma talk is all about, to notice what, to know what they are, those factors, those potential um, factors that can grow, and how they work with one another, so that we can make adjustments in our practice when needed. It's said that sometimes we hear of this as the five spiritual powers, and it's uh, called the five spiritual powers when they when all of these factors become activated and we're really close to liberation. So I want to read from the words of um, Bhikkhu Bodhi. He spoke about this monk uh, yesterday. He's an American monk in this um, early Buddhist teaching called uh, Theravada. Um, And he translated and edited many works of the Buddhist teachings from that ancient Pali language into English. So this is what he says about this, uh, these five spiritual faculties and what they're, they're meant to do in our practice. Left to itself without the guidance of a superior source of instruction, the mind is prey to forces that swell up from within itself. Habitual forces which hold us in subjection and prevent us from attaining our own highest welfare and genuine good. These forces are the defilements or the hindrances. Sometimes in Pali, they're called kilesas. You might hear that word often. As long as we live and act under their dominion, we're not our own masters, but we're passive pawns of habit driven by our blind desires into courses of conduct that promise fulfillment, but in the end lead only to misery and bondage. True freedom necessarily involves the attainment of inner autonomy, the strength to withstand the pushes and pulls of our negative habit patterns, 
And this is accomplished precisely by the development of these five spiritual faculties. So very strong words, doesn't pull any punches. And uh, we need that in our practice because we can fall back so much on habit patterns. So let's look at each factor at a time and how one will naturally be the cause for another to arise. So I want to begin with the factor of faith. Um, This is a a first uh, in, in kind of how they work with one another, how one can bring about another. This is how it would work. We start out with faith and try to understand faith in terms of the Buddha's teachings. It's not about blind faith, you know, like um, we're following a certain kind of religion. And the Buddha's teachings are more like a philosophy of life. And um, so it's like we we learn to understand that philosophy and to follow whatever um, we understand would work for us, you know, to see for ourselves. So when the Buddha talks about faith, it's in these three major areas. It's faith in the teachings, faith in the teachers that we choose to understand the teachings, and faith in ourselves. And I would say that the last one, faith in ourselves, is the most important, really is the one we have to work on, I guess, uh, much of the time. Faith brings the energy to take the steps on our path, to take um, this faith and have confidence that we have some degree of strength, some degree of confidence that we are being led in the right direction. This direction is a direction towards liberating insight to give us that inner freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. So when we have that kind of confidence that, um, you know, there is, there are these teachings and I can understand as much as I can understand, I can follow. And when we follow, we see, okay, this brings some understanding and I can keep going. So that faith leads to energy and effort, which is one of the spiritual faculties. And I want to point out right at the beginning that this is a relaxed yet sustainable effort. It's not that kind of huge push that we make to keep uh, our effort going. It's more relaxed and sustainable. So my one of my teachers, um, Manindraji, he started calling this effort gentle, persevering effort. And I love that combination of words, gentle, persevering effort. It's not this big oomph of energy. Sometimes we need a little oomph, but that's not sustainable. We might need it in the beginning or at certain points of our practice. And then we we have to settle back more. We have to know when to do that. So not too lax, not too casual, but also not too striving. So when this energy has continuity in this relaxed, sustainable way, then we find a very organic and easeful unfolding of the Dharma within our own hearts. So that energy and effort in a sustained way brings about 
infuses this mindful awareness with the continuity that it needs moment to moment to moment with each uh, different set of conditions that arise. And so we feel that it's sustainable. You know, when, when we feel like oh, we're tired, that means we have to kind of settle back more. And then we can know that, oh, can be really mindful of this moment and the next moment and next moment. So in, in this practice of Vipassana, this mindfulness is on changing moments of experience. That's why in the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha points out all these different ways that experiences arise in the mind and um, mindfulness can be aware of them moment to moment. So even though this awareness is on changing experiences, that continuity brings a very strong stability of mind on just this and just this and just that. But just like we're, we're sitting in a, in a field and, uh, and we're feeling safe and relaxed and looking out upon that field, we're just seeing, it, it just comes seeing, and then hearing just comes, and then a gentle breeze might bring cool, coolness or warmth to the face. And the mind can uh, be with all those experiences in a gentle, sustainable way. And this creates a very strong stability of mind, stable in that continuity. That kind of stability is a concentration that we need on changing objects, which is um, that mindfulness on changing objects brings forth that stability, that fourth um, uh, spiritual faculty is concentration itself. And as I've been pointing out, this is the stability of mind by the continuity of mindful awareness on the changing objects. So this fourth uh, faculty is being developed all along the way. And you can see in your own just imagining or understanding that from your own practice, you can see how that works in your practice. It's not, um, it, you know, it, it's not rocket science. It's very simple understanding. So it's this concentration steadies the mind. It unifies the mind's energy. So it's not um, just dispersed all out there. It can know one thing at a time, one moment at a time, no problem. If it goes kaflui, just, just come back and start again. <clears throat> Not making those kind of kaflui moments um, the end of the world <laughs> where you, you just stop. It just, you know, keep your pace. It's like going on a path and tripping on a rock and you don't stay for a long time blaming the rock or the way you can't walk properly or you just find your balance again and you just keep going no use wasting your time you know looking all into the concepts of why there are rocks on the road why don't people <laughs> clean it up uh, which you know the way the reason why i can give you all those examples is because i experience them myself so all of the um, those four, one after another, 
Faith brings effort energy. Effort energy creates that mindful, sustainable, mindful awareness. That continuity on changing objects brings concentration, steadiness, and steadfastness. And all of that together brings forth wisdom um, where there can be sustainable, um, uh, just even momentary, but sustainable focus on one thing. And what mindfulness understands is uh, seeing the wisdom uh, factor of that moment. Wisdom in the Dharma means the mind begins to see the changing nature, the impermanent nature, uh, which we call anicca in everything. It sees the empty nature or the empty of self nature in everything. It can also see the dukkha nature or the, the nature of unsatisfactoriness that whatever we're holding on to or clinging to, it doesn't last, especially we learn that through pleasant experiences. So it doesn't make sense to hang on because uh, things are always moving along. So it, it normally, all of these factors together will normally bring forth that wisdom. We don't have to do much else but that. We always tend to think we have to think things out, but um, just coming back to the basic practice um, will help. People have asked me along the way, what what do you attribute your um, unfolding of the practice to and, and coming to this place now where you're at? And, you know, I've given so many answers along the way, but what I've come to after these um, more than 30 years going on 40 practice is um, I followed instructions. <laughs> it's so simple. I just followed these instructions of being mindful. And I didn't try to go off and try to the, um, understand theoretically everything, which is good, but too much th- theory, very little practice is not going to get you anywhere but being uh a great person who can talk about the Dharma, but not be so liberated. So, you know, get back to the practice if you're trying to understand the theory so much. Don't forget practice, the basic practice. So from this wisdom, the cycle deepens and continues, and it kindles our faith. Then with that faith, we have the energy to keep going. That energy brings more awareness, more like mindfulness has little work, that kind of thing. We feel it very easily coming. Concentration is there. Wisdom, insights open up. Like, you know, insights may be deeper insights into impermanence, deeper insights into the selfless nature, the empty nature of everything. They just come automatically it's much more exciting than reading a book about it or understanding some great you know person's thoughts about it that's borrowed borrowed uh, wisdom but what we're developing here is this this wisdom that comes from our own potential to be liberated so all of this leads to greater faith and the and it continues the cycle so now I'd like to fill in these qualities a little more fully. And, and I, I chose this talk because 
each of these qualities are so important and we only have just you know a couple of days and usually we give one at least one one or more of these talks on each one of these so um, i'd like to fill each one out a little more so uh, faith provides the inspiration when when we take the first one faith provides the insp inspiration so that we can um, bring forth the energy to aspire towards something greater than we can imagine now or greater than we can theorize now it's more like experiential knowledge that we're really going for faith plants the seeds of confidence so that we can overcome any difficult places in our practice so there's three kinds of faith um, there's four kinds but these three kinds are the ones we kind of recognize in our practice and the fourth kind is the result of these kinds of faith there's blind faith bright faith and verified faith blind faith is which we've all had if we look back on on our own practice and lives is when we're we are involved in a practice because basically we're just following others and we haven't come to the point where we're checking it out for ourselves so that's all in the past for all of us um uh, now we're checking it out and maybe you have years of checking it out for yourself in the famous teaching called the kalama sutta the buddha said and advised all of those who came to him uh, which were uh, the kalama clan the clan of the kalamas and they were saying oh, we don't understand there's so many uh, teachings coming to our particular um, town and uh, area and uh, we don't know which is best or what do we follow um, it's so confusing sometimes so basically i won't read the whole sutta to you but basically the buddha said we have to try it out for ourselves in the practice, we have this word, ehi pasiko, ehi pasiko, which means come and see for yourself. And then if you follow the instructions, all of these things will, understandings, these deep understandings will unfold. So there's bright faith. When we do this, then we um, have this bright faith when we follow instructions and um, we, we go along and then maybe we meet a person or we actually hear an instruction or a dharma talk we hear the dharma or we're in a place that really inspires us and um, maybe some pe a person that we know or the teacher inspires us to go deeper to to uh, follow that path and that's when we do that then this bright faith comes up because we see, oh, it's possible. We see someone else's beingness in the world and um, we sense it from nature somehow. We understand a reading or a Dharma talk because it connects up with some part of our own experience and this bright faith comes about. So there were usually, in, when I look back, all of this happened, you know, the, um, there were different snippets of one or the other of these being in a beautiful place, hearing a reading, 
Um, and But most of all, I was really inspired by Manindraji, who brought me um, uh, a connection with Deepama, not personally. Many of you have probably heard of Deepama, was a very important, um, in my own practice, a householder, a mother who practiced at home, couldn't go to, you know, be in a monastery uh, or a nunnery, but had practiced at home and practiced very deeply, was very deeply liberated. So that was a bright faith to me that that was possible. So when that bright faith came and I practiced on my own, then all of these understandings would come. You know, this understanding about anicca, about dukkha, about anatta, and um, that verified my faith. And uh, understanding about the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths, those um, all verified my faith, uh, faith because I knew that I was living in alignment with the Buddha's teachings, with that philosophy of living a, a, a good life as a good human being and having the possibility to be liberated. So there's blind faith um, when we're just involved in a practice and we don't check it out for ourselves. Uh, and then there's bright faith when we are inspired to go on. And through that inspiration, there's verified faith and we understand for ourselves. And that verified faith leads to a, a faith where it can't be shaken. It's called unshakable faith. It means that the mind has understood so, so deeply that nothing else can stop us from continuing on in the path to full liberation. So faith seek, steers the mind uh, away from doubt. And of course, many Many moments of doubt come. That's the direct opposite of faith. But what um, keeps one on the path is that we can understand um, how we can stay on the path, and uh, even with moments of doubt. And we come back and connect again with our faith. Doubt can arise, and we think, oh, I can't do this. And then we realize, all right, it's possible. And we keep that next step going. Um, I love this um, saying by uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther, Luther King Jr. Faith is taking the first step, even when we, you don't see the whole staircase. Because maybe we've got some inspiration from someone else. And, and okay, we have this bright faith, we can keep going. So uh, faith keeps an eye on our highest aspirations and knows it must take one step at a time, one step at a time. So again, another inspiring quote from Brene Domal from, this is from the book Mount Analog. The first step depends on the last, our highest aspirations, you know, the intention to go in that direction. The first step depends on the last, and the last step depends on the first. So in, in a way, every next step is the first step. 
So know when faith gets paralyzed with doubt or it's confused and see if we can still take the next step, keep going. I don't see faith as I did before when I was a child in, in, in a religious tradition. I was raised as a Catholic and I still have strong appreciation and ties to that actually. But in this kind of faith, I have a devotion to my practice towards liberation. So it isn't a devotion to any deity or um, to any religion um, or to any um, person. It's a faith in and devotion to my own practice, to carrying out my practice. So I look at it as devotion. And I like to change that word to faith, to devotion, because there's it's so hard. Um, this faith in, in, in many of our Western cultures is so linked to uh, kind of a religious group. And we have to be in that group. And uh, this faith is, you know, taking it on our own. So um, faith is very, very important. And it's the first of the balancing factors. And the second factor is that energy. So I've said already that energy and energy uh, of um, this second factor, that effort that we must take is physical exertion. Sometimes we think of it as physical exertion, but it's really mental exertion. It's really knowing what we're what we can sustain uh, it's that kind of um, degree of understanding where the balance is yeah sometimes we need to bring our physical energy up a little bit in the, like the walking practice or sitting practice we need to sit up straighter open our eyes for example but sometimes um, many times being a westerner raised in the west mostly um, I was born in an Asian country, but mostly raised in the West, then I, I, I know that I have to watch that energy of striving. So that's, that's what's really most what we have to watch out for when we're striving too much in our practice. So watch, watching out for that in our practice, remember that this is not a 100-yard dash, as one of our teachers, Uteshaniya, says. This is more like a marathon. It's multi-year. <laughs> Sometimes for those of us who might believe it, it's multi-lifetime. Multi um, so what Uteshaniya calls energy or effort is patience, the patience and perseverance, persistence. You know, in a gentle way. So I've covered faith, now energy and effort. And the third spiritual faculty is awareness itself. Um, every day here, we're learning more about awareness. This is the instructions that we're giving every morning. So we have a, a a lot more energy and, and information around that, which will continue every time we sit together, there'll be instructions around mindfulness. So mindfulness, 
I want to go back to the Pali word because the Pali words are so rich in their uh, definition of them um, and uh, uh, sense of them as we actually practice. Um, the word in Pali for mindfulness is sati, S-A-T as in Tom, I, S-A-T-I, sati. And it means actually to remember, to remember to observe, to remember to observe. And what are we observing? The present moment's experience. And what comes in the present moment? One of the four foundations of mindfulness. So um, when we do this mindfulness practice, which is called vipassana, it's not concentration practice on one object. It's concentration on a variety of experiences, which the Buddha called the four foundations of mindfulness, on uh, that all of these conditions are um, necessary uh, and to take a look at. Uh, all of these are necessary to bring mindfulness to. So they're varied. It's not just one thing. They're changing experiences. So we remember to observe them one at a time. And which one is chosen? And um, we'll get onto that during the next sittings. But what is chosen is the one that is most obvious. Usually that's chosen for us. It's the one that is most predominant, like in the foreground of our attention. Not what's all in the background, but what's in the foreground of our attention. So we remember to observe that and not get lost in the concepts of them, what they mean, uh, what they could mean in the future, what was meant by them in the past, not getting lost in that, but just to have the um, ultimate uh, understanding, the ultimate reality of that moment, of knowing that. There, it's basically one of the five physical sense doors or the mind. You know, seeing, hearing, smelling, sensing, touching, um, tasting, and the, the various and many aspects of the mind. So it's so important just to be mindfully aware of whatever's in the present moment. And one of the things that um, occurred to me, no, I never heard this anywhere, but it, it was more, or read this, but it was more just implied here and there, at least in what I was understanding, is that actually it's only in the present moment that one can be really, truly liberated. That's when liberation occurs in a present moment, when many factors are coming together that strengthen the heart and mind and that are able to see through the illusions of the opposites of the three characteristic, the illusion of permanence, the illusion of self, the illusion that somewhere out there, there can be complete satisfaction. And uh, the, the understanding, the deepening understanding of those opposites, which are um, uh, anicca dukkha nata, the opposites of what I just spoke about, seeing impermanence, seeing the emptiness of self, and also seeing the unsatisfactoriness, 
that comes in a present moment experience. That's why it's so important to stay in the present moment. So Sati remembers and recognizes what's in that present moment. It's important to say, um, and this is in regards to the noting process that Steve and I uh, have mentioned already, when we note with a silent mental notation, what is being perceived. In the um, Abhidhamma, which is called the um, higher Dhamma, or the higher understanding, it, it's actually much more detailed and nuanced um, in, in this Abhidhamma about what goes on in the mind. Um, so it's said that there, there are these, it's broken down in the Abhidhamma, what's their function of mindfulness, what's the proximate cause, what's the characteristic, what's the manifestation. All of these are broken down in the Abhidhamma. And it's interesting that the proximate cause for mindfulness to arise is strong perception, strong perception. And the perception it is, whether it's smelling, seeing, tasting, you know, that kind, or some kind of mind experience like thinking, or um, the other objects of mind like emotions or mental states. That's why it's important for many of us to note, to make a silent mental notation, because there can be many things in the field of awareness. And what we've learned is that we take, or it's so obvious what's in the foreground, that's the one in the present moment that mindfulness attunes to that one, that one experience. Here's the experience, and here's the mindfulness of that experience. But sometimes it gets a little bit blurry, or it's not so clear. So when we mention what it is, hearing, it's just this is just hearing then mindfulness and that hearing come together and it's very very clear mindfulness can actually kind of um pierce it said manindra used to work use the word it pierces the illusion of permanence it pierces the illusion of self it pierces the illusion of satisfactoriness like we're gonna obtain that somehow so we keep chasing after something so we, we really learn deeply from that. So if you haven't tried it yet, you could try noting. It's not, it's not that hard, of course, but there's a, there's a idea that goes around in Western minds that if we say one word, we're going to get lost in thought. It's a little, uh, that's a little far beyond. <laughs> it doesn't have to go that far. We just have to say, one little um, silent mental notation, hearing, seeing, thinking, and then you, you just stay with the actual experience of it. And sometimes you don't say the word, but it's just known. It's that that's just known in the mind. It really helps the perception to be clearer, which is the proximate cause of mindfulness to arise. The function of mindfulness is to remember the present moment. The characteristic of mindfulness is not floating away. It can stay with that present moment experience as long as it, it is there in that moment. Like thoughts, you know, 
you can say thinking. And if you, if you're not aware that the mind is thinking, it'll just stay there. And uh, it, it just float away with that thinking. But once, um, if you could just say, notice and note thinking, it, it might just be able to see in that moment how thinking just disappears. It's really uh, not a big deal. So those are some of the aspects of um, mindfulness. And I thought, you know, that's really important. I wanted to um, expand on the mindfulness factor. So that's uh, three of the factors. And just quickly through the next two, the, the fourth one is concentration. And this is the fourth faculty. And this concentration in our practice, Vipassana practice, is on changing objects to, to create that stability of mind, not on one thing like staying with the breath all the time, but on many things, uh, on uh, changing objects, which means, you know, we, we see hearing and then thinking comes and then um, pleasant experience comes and then wanting comes, you know, the mind can follow along with that. So one of you just um, express something like that to be able to see that deeply just by opening the door and seeing that the mind was perceiving something and then the name came up of that person. Just saw kind of like that deepening experience. This is what happens when you do the practice and, and mindfulness is really there. So that concentration is on changing objects and that leads to liberating wisdom because it's wisdom, which is another factor. Wisdom is not mindfulness. Wisdom is not energy. Mindfulness is another factor. Uh, wisdom is another factor of mind. And it's wisdom that sees this changing nature. It's wisdom that sees into the nature of all reality. All the insights will come once you just keep the practice going. So Vipassana practice develops liberating wisdom. Now, just want to, I, I have to um, repeat this because usually it's, it's even as people can practice for a long time and don't know the difference. Vipassana practice produces liberating wisdom. Concentration practice, when you're doing like pure jhana practice, produces concentration. We can transfer that concentration to changing objects, but we can't stay on the jhanas and develop liberating wisdom. Jhanas lead to jhanas, lead to more concentration. But we can transfer that to changing objects and it becomes vipassana and that leads to liberating wisdom so there's a big difference there so when faith and energy mindfulness and concentration are all present wisdom arises naturally and it'll arise on the relative level in our daily lives It'll arise on the deepening level of our practice. Ultimately, it leads to complete liberation where all of the 
hindrances and the kilesas, um, which are more detailed <laughs> than five hindrances, they get uprooted from the mind. They're weakened, first of all, and then eventually uprooted in the mind. So that all that, uh, then we say, well, then what are we? Just a blah? You know, not necessarily, actually not. With We become a very wise person with lots of good energy, with the energy to know what what path to follow, whether we um, do something or not. And if we need to do something in our lives, we do it with a lot of power, with a lot of generosity of our being, with a lot of clear-mindedness, with a lot of compassion, with a lot of wisdom. And so it's it's not that we just are, you know, uh, fall back on and get out of life. We actually are um, continuing to be in life, but with a lot of uh, much stronger um, faculties that help us. So from Utejaniya, who says, wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes a difference between skillful and unskillful and clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. This is wisdom in our daily lives. Inclines towards the good, but not attached to it shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it, recognizes the difference between what's skillful and unskillful, and chooses the skillful. So <clears throat> these faculties are, are what we're developing, and it's really important to know about them. I just like, I always um, like to um, present also some quotes from some women teachers. So this is Ayakema, one of my teachers from long ago, before she passed away. And this is what she said. Uh, she was a nun in the uh, Theravada tradition. And after she became and raised her child, she became a nun. So Ayakema says, since all of us have these faculties within there is every reason to cultivate them. One finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person with less difficulties, capable of helping others. To develop these five faculties should be a primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting heart with the mind. So I, I hope that it's been helpful and informative to you and something that you can really use in, in your practice, in your life. Thank you so much for your kind attention. We'll be accentuating these uh, as, we, as we continue our um, time together. I went over a little bit on the, um, on the Dharma talk. So... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.